Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. en los diferentes estados. Everybody and welcome to episode 45 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Once again, Richard and I are in the car on the way to a drive-in movie. Coincidentally, again, we had an, a, a song that is appropriate for the movies that we're going to see. It's called Strangler by Kala. It's from the 2003 album Televised, and that's available on Apple Music. So I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and as I mentioned with me is... Hello, everyone. This is Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We had so much fun last month. We're going to do it again, and we're going to do it next month as well. We told you we're doing this all summer, going to the drive-in. Uh, why is a, a song called Strangler appropriate for the movies we're going to see, Rich? That would probably be because it is the uh, title or part of the title of one of the three movies that we are going to be checking out because we are traveling back to 1963. We are headed to the Badger Drive-In Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. We're skipping out on the first movie. They're doing a Halloween horrorama. We're a little late, so we didn't catch Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, but we've got a Boris Karloff double feature, Corridors of Blood, The Haunted Strangler, and Fiend Without a Face. Cannot wait. All three of those, this will be the first time I've ever seen them. Well, of course, 1963, it's the first time everyone's seeing them, probably. I don't know, maybe we'll talk about that, because it, this is a trio of odd production and delays in release and releases in other countries first and all of that. So I kind of had trouble figuring out exactly when you know they all came out, but we'll, we'll hash that out as we go through them, won't we? 
Absolutely. And and I know that we're getting horror pills tonight at the drive-in, a special giveaway. I have no idea if we're getting Ruthied or what's going on tonight, <laughs> but that's that's a special giveaway. And they're promising, they're promising us tonight that the Halloween Horrorama is going to scare the yell out of us. Wow. So, I don't know. They're setting the bar kind of high. Yeah, my expectations are way up there. And you know about expectations, huh? <laughs> well, that's a, a full slate ahead of us, three movies, and we run long as it is, so we want to get right to it. We do have some old business, though, to get to, and, and we've got some new members this this uh, month. These are people that have joined our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. So we have welcomed them on Facebook, but let's welcome them here on the podcast. We have Isaac Harris, Mike Harris. Don't know if they're related or not. I saw a little back and forth between them on the page, so we could possibly assume they at least know each other. Oh, how are we going to say this one? Simon Amu? Amuine? Simon, welcome. <laughs> Jordan Yakowinko and Andrew Johnson Schmidt. Welcome all of you to our Facebook group page. On that page, we get lots of wonderful feedback. I wanted to call out one particular thing among all of the wonderful posts that Joe Carson gives us. I, Again, I feel like he's our news source. I learn of some things for the first time from the things he posts on our Facebook group page. So I, I really appreciate that, Joe. Couple of really uh, sort of big news items on there. So check that out. But I do wanna call out Chris Franklin's comment. He told us that he completed Dark Shadows. And then it was our episode about Dark Shadows that inspired him to watch the entire series. He said he kind of stalled out through the Leviathan storyline, and that happens to a lot of people. That's not a favorite storyline. But he took some time off, came back in January, and knocked him out. I immediately gave him a hearty congratulations. I'll say that again, Chris. Fantastic. You earn your Dark Shadows merit badge, I guess, or something for doing that. We also got some voicemail. Uh, I, I feel like it was a desperate measure, but we had gotten an, e an email that uh, our phone line hadn't been used in a while and was gonna end. So I put out a desperate plea for someone to leave a message. Of course, we could have called each other and left a message and yeah, we could have fine, but, but it worked and we got a couple voicemails. They dialed 616-649-2582, which is also known as 616-649 club very good so uh let's hear up first from steve solon we hadn't heard from him in a while so it was good to hear from him he had some specific comments about our last episode uh and particularly about the blob so uh, let's hear that and then we might uh, have a comment or two about that hey jeff and rich steve sullivan calling on the uh, classic horror podcast episode 44 i married a blob at the drive-in i really enjoy both The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space. I think they're excellent 1950s horror sci-fi movies. Uh, the Blob is awesome. I think you're too hard on Steve McQueen and the rest for looking too old. I don't know if you caught the uh, teenagers battle the thing on Derek's uh, Twitch streaming Monster Kid Radio a couple of weeks back, but all the teenagers in that look older, but they're actually teenagers. Uh, I did some research and discovered that they were actually in high school at the time, but they, they definitely don't look like they are. Uh, so I think you're maybe being a little too hard about that, because in the old days, kids dressed up to look older and, and 
people dressed to look younger and stuff. And so there's like an age between 18 and 50 where they almost look the same. So anyway, uh, that aside, like I said, I enjoy both those films. I actually like the Blob sequel with Hagman, but mostly probably because I'm a big Carol Lindley fan. <laughs> so I haven't watched it for years, and I know it's not nearly as good as the original. I also like the 80s or 90s Blob remake. I thought that one was actually a lot of fun. So if they're going to do it again, count me in. Sounds, sounds like a good time. Uh, other than that, just sheltering in place here, hanging out during the pandemic, watching as many movies as possible, close to probably hit 300 by the end of June. So <laughs> a lot of movie watching. Uh, talk to you guys soon. Have a great one. Bye. All right. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Great to hear from you. Loved your comments on The Blob. You know, you talked about the remake and the possible chance of a new remake. It's been a long time since I've seen the, the 80s remake. I remember I enjoyed it at the time. It's not something that I, I, I've ever felt the need to revisit, whereas, you know, obviously I, I wanted to revisit the original and have more than once. I guess that kind of says something, but I am interested in the idea of a modern day remake. Now for starters, you're going to use CGI, so the blob is going to look a lot different. It, it could look bad if you get bad CGI. So, I mean, hopefully if they ever do a modern day take on it, maybe we'll see something different with the blob. Maybe the blob will kind of take shape or something. You know, I think it could be interesting. I would love to see them do a sequel, though, to the original and address the fact that climate change has caused the ice to melt and the blob has come back to life and maybe do just a mention or a throwback somehow to the original and and wouldn't it be fun to somehow maybe even go back to that original theater because it's still there you know and they do the blob fest you know that's something that they could you know easily do some type of reference and i think it'd be fun i think it'd be fun to see what they could do Maybe it left a little piece of itself there, and it's like the mother and has to go back and find his child. Oh, you know, this is like totally bringing like real world, but what if the blob that has been going to all these conventions is really the blob, and it's a piece, and now it's it somehow becomes reanimated. And so there it's a go. convention, and somebody touches it, and maybe they, maybe they're like, you know, touched something that causes the blob to reactivate and it attacks them in the convention. That'd be hilarious. The possibilities are endless. Let's get on it. Yeah, come on, Mr. Sullivan. Write this thing. Make it happen. I think you and and uh, Josh Kennedy or Christopher Mim need to work on a blob remake in 2021. Remake slash sequel, yeah. Our other voicemail is a first-time caller, Alan Trump from St. Louis, and it was really good to hear from Alan. He's, uh, I, I love following him on Facebook. He has the craziest dreams that he likes to share, and uh, I've met Alan at Monster Bash before, and uh, he's an all-around good guy. Really appreciate him calling in. He did something that uh, we're gonna talk about later, we're gonna do in our next um, episode, and that is just tell us of a memorable driving experience that he had uh, growing up. Quite a hilarious story. Let's uh, hear Alan tell it himself. This is Alan Trump out in St. Louis. Uh, you had asked on Facebook for drive-in stories, so here is mine. Uh, it is pretty embarrassing, but I'll do it anyway. Anyway, 
back in the 70s, um, uh, my mother was a big fan of the Dynasty and Dallas shows, which had Joan Collins on them. So she happened to notice that at the drive-in near us, the Skyview in Belleville, Illinois, they were showing uh, Joan's movie, The Devil Within Her, about having the possessed baby. Anyway, she said, hey. And my mom had been the one who took me to see The Exorcist a few years ago, and I wasn't getting too many teenage girls volunteering to go to the drive-in. So I said, sure, Mom, why not? Let's go to the drive-in and see this. So we go, and the opening film is a movie called Don't Open the Window, which in the uncut form you may know as Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue or Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Well, anyway, that's a pretty, a, a very good, but pretty frightening and gory horror, zombie horror film, which starts off with a young lady taking off her coat and streaking across a London street. Well, here I am with my mom and okay. So we get into this and with the uh, gut eating and flesh ripping that's going on was pretty tame by, you know, this was the cut version. At least my mom didn't see the uncut version, which I saw years later, which included eye eating and even more disemboweling. But it did have, my mother took particular delight in the scene in which the main corpse puts blood on the eyes of a dead woman to to bring her And I think the hero, Ray Lovelock, says, oh, hello, darling. My mother loved that. So then we finally got in, after that ordeal, we finally got into The Devil Within Her, which uh, a lot of, well, you know, shenanigans, evil, horny dwarf, and... Uh, uh, all the shenanigans going on with the possessed baby. And again, my mother particularly liked the scene where the uh, guy gets punched or stabbed by the baby and, and says to Joan Collins, Ow, oh, that's your little bastard, all right. <clears throat> so while all of this is going on, we're watching this. And like I say, in particular, uh, Don't Open the Window was very frightening. Well, anyway, my wife, my wife, thank you, there's a for you. My mom and I had just uh, finished, we're in the process of watching Don't Open the Window at the drive-in, when all of a sudden I hear a banging on the window, and I, there's some skip, and I, and I look out there, and there's a guy standing there. So I roll down my window, and I'm glad I didn't have a tray on it from, you know, the concession stand, and the, and the guy hands me a card. And again, this is at night, and he hands me a card, and the card says, I am deaf. This is the only way I have to make a living. Could you please offer, could you please provide me with some money? Well, I, you know what? I, I should have been more sympathetic and given him some money, but after darn near making me crap my pants in the middle of a horror film like that, all I gave him was an earful with him even being deaf. He could probably hear about <laughs> scaring the bejesus out of me. So anyway, fast forward about 30 years or so, and my uh, my mom and my dad have uh, passed away. But I was t at a convention, uh, probably Monster Bash, and I was talking to Carolyn Monroe, who was also in The Devil Within Her. And I told her that my mom and I saw that movie together. And she goes, 
your mom took you to see that? And I said, no, I took her. She was a big Joan Collins fan. And Carolyn Munro's eyes, she did an eye roll that you could probably hear three blocks away. So that is my drive-in story. I hope you guys have a wonderful uh, week and are staying safe in these COVID times. And I look forward to listening to the next episode of the podcast. Take care. Bye now. Thank you, Alan. Again, we appreciate you calling in. I really got a kick out of your story, especially your Freudian slip. That's very funny, uh, considering the time I've been spending with my mother the last few months. I, I got a big kick out of that. I, only comment I, I really have is that uh, the movie you saw, you called it Don't Open the Window, also known as several other names, including Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, has just come out uh, in a nice deluxe Blu-ray steelbook edition from Synapse Films. So those that are interested or familiar with that movie, it's one I've always wanted to see, and maybe it's because of all the different names it has. I just never really have known what version of it would be, you know, a good, the best version to see. And uh, this, I think, will, will be it. I haven't received it yet, but I'm looking forward to getting that and, and watching that. I loved his story, and I have to say that when when he first said "deaf," I thought he said "death," and I'm like, "So you you're at a drive-in theater, and death comes knocking at the window." <laughs> and then he was kind of like, you know, I, and he got you know an earful, and I'm like, "Man, that's kind of daring. I don't know if I'd be doing that with death. I'd be like, you know, what can I do for you? You know, hopefully nothing." Yeah, I thought that was that was a crazy story, and I I've got. An interesting story to, to tell, yeah, next month. My one of my crazy drive-in experiences, and <laughs> I'll just I'll leave you this teaser. It involved Howard the Duck, cold weather, and alcohol. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's <laughs> so, a deadly mix there. It's, it's a yeah, you, that's a trifecta right there. So um, yeah, it'll be uh, that'll be fun to to kind of share. I was trying to do the math. I don't want to uh, put anyone on the spot or embarrass him, but trying to figure out how old he would have been at that time, because he also mentioned his mom taking him to see The Exorcist several years before that. I would guess Alan's around my age, and that would have been about the same age I was seeing those movies. Richard, you didn't have that experience with your parents, but it sounds like both Alan and I had moms that loved those kind of movies too, and and were okay taking us to see them. No that way. explains. Uh, a lot of things about me today i think but yeah anyway. no way in heaven or hell would my parents have taken me to see the exorcist that would that wouldn't happen today my mom wouldn't sit and watch the exorcist with me today so you know you guys had a vastly different experience i i never went to a drive-in until uh, i was in high school in the 1980s sadly so i wanted to but yeah i never had that experience that's it for old business we're, we're still a few miles away do you want to tell us anything about this theater that we're going to? Is there any history or anything that you want to share? History. Yeah, first off, I love the name Badger, Badger Drive-In. Um, now, is it the Badger or the Honey Badger? <laughs> I think it's the Badger. The Badger, the okay. Oh, Wisconsin, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This information comes courtesy of cinematreasures.org. I think that's the name of the website. Cinema Treasures gives you all that cool information. I'm sure most of us have one time or another looked it up you can find out pretty much any movie theater that was ever in existence is listed on this site if it's still standing or what's in you know what's in its place 
information kind of varies depending on what's out there. Badger Drive-In was originally, it had room for 600 cars. It opened on September 4th, 1948. So really just right at the the beginning of the the big main drive-in theater craze. And the first movie they played, a movie I've never heard of, Down to Earth with Rita Hayworth. Now I've heard of her, but I've not heard of that film. The design of the theater, I mean, it had uh, completely surfaced grounds. It had a modern concession building, a 60-foot screen. The Wisconsin State Journal stated that there was a mile-long line of cars lined up for opening night. Pretty big deal there for for Madison, Wisconsin, to get the Badger Drive-In. August 26, 1955, they had a really big night. Charlton Heston came to town to promote. Yeah, he promoted the private war of Major Benson. And apparently he appeared at both the Badger Drive-In and another local theater there called the Strand Theater. Busy night for, for Mr. Heston. June 15th, 1979, they expanded to four screens, adding an additional 1,000 car spaces. They added radio sound, so the speaker posts had, were eliminated. They went ahead and they, they, the new owners, they operated like several other drive-ins and movie theaters in the area, but it was the first multi-screen drive-in theater to be built in the Midwest, at least according to the, the local newspaper. Sadly, though, it only lasted another 10 years. Um, September 4th, 1989, the Badger Drive-In closed with some fun double features that any of these movies would have been cool. 1989 was a pretty big year for movies. So they were playing The Karate Kid 3, Ghostbusters 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Star Trek 5, The Final Frontier. A month later, it was leveled and uh, construction started on a business park. Just what the world <laughs> needs. To the best of my knowledge, there is nothing left of the Badger Drive-In in modern times. Apparently, though, there's a video out there, and I did get a chance to see it yet, of someone who is restoring a speaker from the Badger Drive-In. And apparently there, it's on YouTube. Hmm. Um, that would probably be the only thing that I think that would exist from the Badger Drive-In is if someone out there maybe had a uh, one of those speakers from back in the day. And even then, though, I think that's probably most of those were probably probably trashed because they were removed uh, in the 70s, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, so that's the Badger Drive-In. It, it certainly was around for, you know, more than 40 years. Unfortunately, is is didn't survive the modern day renaissance of, of drive-in theaters, but uh, had a long history there for the people in the Madison area. So we are, are traveling back to 1963 when the Badger was in its heyday. A series of films we got going on tonight, they were bringing the people in for the uh, Halloween Horrorama. And as we're getting close, there's a line. There's a line of people waiting to get in. So those horror pills, they're bringing in. They're bringing people in. I just have to say those movies you mentioned all in 1989, every one of them a sequel. That's just, that's just struck me. As you, as the list went on and on, I was thinking, okay, there's going to be something original. There's going to be something original. Nope. No, I mean, there was, there was, you know, original Batman came out in 89. True. So that played at the, the theater. I have to say, I, we did just watch the Indiana Jones films. The first two are, 
are a lot of fun. I, I've never liked Last Crusade as much as Raiders and, and Temple of Doom. It's it's fun. I love Sean Connery. He's, he's great in that movie. But there was just something about that movie. I think the fact that it was Indy paired up with his father made it a little different than Indy being paired up with the women in the first two films. Mm. And then the fourth film wasn't quite as bad as I remembered it, but it totally falls apart there in that final act when it's revealed the space aliens and the spaceship lifts up and stuff. I'm like, Indy was always about supernatural stuff, right? So that was cool. I think throwing in space aliens to me was a huge mistake. I thought that was just a bad idea at the time. And Indy's son, Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf, never a big fan of his entirely. So, you know, they're still saying there's going to be a fifth film. I, I you know, unfortunately with the pandemic and, and everything just continuing to get delayed and pushed back, I just, I don't think they should do another one. I think that they, they just need to call it good because... Harrison Ford, well, I love him, and he was good in, in The Force Awakens for what we saw him. I just don't think he could do a an action film at this at this age unless they bring in another young guy to try to do some of the other stunts. I, I don't think they're bringing in his son again because Shia is in a different place in his career. He's not doing mainstream films. Say, well, maybe we should recast Indy at this point. Harrison Ford owns that role so much. I'm just not sure that you could have somebody else be Indy without being comparison to Harrison and being almost crippled in that capacity. Harrison owns that role so much. Maybe Indiana Jones is a franchise we should just let stand and quietly just sit in the archives. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Oh, <laughs> I don't really have any. I haven't seen Crystal Skull since I saw it in the theater. I like all three it, with decreasing returns. I mean, I like them pretty much in the order they came out, but all right up there. Yeah, I I can't think it's a good idea to do another one. Guess what? That was a side tangent, and we haven't yes. even seen the films yet. But our timing is impeccable because we are now pulling into... Uh, so let me stop gabbing here and... Uh, Pay attention so we can get a good spot. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna pull up, get us a spot, and turn on the speaker, and let's see what's going on. Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? <laughs> well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. 
Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. Pizza! Pizza! Pizza, pizza, pizza! Everybody loves pizza, and we're now featuring the famous original Tolona pizza. Only the finest and purest ingredients go into the original Tolona pizza, made fresh to your order. And into the oven it goes. Presto, a luscious, hot, crispy pizza. We're now featuring... Hey, wait a minute. Give me another pizza. <laughs> That's better. Now, as I was saying... We now have delicious, crispy Tolona pizza at the refreshment stand. What do you have? Cheese, sausage, or pepperoni? Take it away! a man so gentle and kindly that the sight of cruelty and violence cut him like a whip. Transformed in one fantastic night into the graveyard ghoul whose claws were clenched with the wild, uncontrollable urge to kill. Now, Hannah, who was it you saw? It was too dark to see properly. He was more like a beast than a human being. A man with the appetites of a monster. All human passions twisted by the same strange obsession that turned his face into a hideous mask of cruelty. It was the same man, the very same man. I tell you that if you brought me face to face with him now, it was the Haymarket Strangler. Body and soul, torn by the battle between good and evil, running amok in a reign of terror that paralyzed a city with fright. was interesting Richard the haunted strangler I'm uh, not sure what I thought uh, about that one um, you want to start out and kind of give us a little synopsis a, a summary of what it was all about yeah so it's it's set in 1860 and we we kind of start off we're at the uh, at a prison and a uh, one-armed man is dragged to the gallows he's screaming that he's innocent we we see him getting buried and just before the, the lid of the coffin goes on, you see a hand drop in a knife. Then we kind of go forward 20 years later, and author James Rankin, played by Boris Karloff, is, he's become obsessed with this case. He wants to prove that Edward Stiles was not the Haymarket Strangler. However, he goes through some less than legal means to exhume the body, he finds the evidence that he needs. He finds that knife, but then a transformation kind of happens, almost like a Jekyll Hyde transformation. And it seems as if 
the murders have resumed and the Haymarket Strangler is back. Madness and chaos ensue. Uh, <laughs> when I first watched this, it was back in the 90s. I, I, I picked... You mean it was coming up in the 90s? Coming up in the 90s. <laughs> yes, this is true. Time travel. Sorry, that joke's going to get really old fast. I so know. I'll so just stop it. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. That's a Doctor Who reference. <laughs> anyway... I bought The Haunted Strangler and Quarters of Blood on, on VHS, and they were cool packaging. They had the the poster art on it, and they came with trailers and, and something which was kind of new for the 90s. I mean, pretty much, remember, VHS tapes, sometimes you had trailers for, like, upcoming films from the major studios or whatever, but this was actually trailers of the movies and, and related films, and uh, that was something kind of different, which I thought at the time was cool. Uh, you know, as the years have gone on, I I liked the the Haunted Strangler a lot more when I first saw it, and through subsequent revisits, it seems like every time I rewatch it, I find something else to kind of be a bit nitpicky about it, and realize that. I don't know, for some reason, this movie doesn't wear as well with me after multiple rewatches. I love Karloff. This time period, 58, was kind of a renaissance for Karloff. He, he had kind of quit doing horror movies. He was doing lots of television work and, and random appearances in films. And he had done some real stinkers just a few years before this a movie called Sabaka in 54, I think, which he didn't have much of a part in. The notoriously bad Island Monster in 55, which doesn't have a monster in it at all. And if you watch that film, it's not even Boris Karloff's voice. They, they got a voice actor to pretend to be Karloff. It is so, so bad. He did Voodoo Island in 57, which then led to these movies in 58 and Frankenstein 1970. And then within a few years, he was really in the 60s. He was back in the horror game again, right? Because he was doing The Raven and The Terror and so many films and for the rest of his career. So this was kind of his, he was dabbling getting back into the horror genre. And while I like his performance in the movie, it is a little cheesy when he transforms into the Strangler a little bit, but it kind of works. But the, the whole circumstances of the movie, and it feels like when we get into the, almost like the second half of the film, it seems like we were, the, the first 45 minutes or so, we're kind of going along at a good pace. And then there's a twist that happens in the plot, which I don't know if we want to talk about or not. But when that twist happens, all of a sudden it seems like the movie kind of fell off the rails a little bit. For me, anyway. I don't know. What do you think? There's a lot I like about it. I mean, I love Karloff. I, I, the opening is terrific. Uh, very chilling. It's shot well. The director, a guy named Robert Day, who also directed Quarters of Blood. I think it's shot well, well made. It, the pacing's fine. I just had a hard time with the story and I'll be honest and we're going to have to talk spoilers or I'm not going to be explain, be able to explain why I don't understand. I don't really understand what happened. You know, was he possessed by the killer? But then if that wasn't really the killer was the knife possessed and his wife being involved somehow, uh, it just, 
I had to kind of put aside what was happening to explain it and just kind of enjoy what was happening. I, I kind of liked his transition. I mean, he did it all himself. And I had made a note, you know, that he like shuts his right eye, he sucks in his lower lip and he bites down, you know, he, he makes a physical transformation. I didn't know until I did a little research that he accomplished that by taking his dentures out. And he offered to do that, you know, for budgetary reasons. He said, hey, I, I can do that. Well, keep in you mind, know, like, Frankenstein, he, he removed his molars so he could get that sunken appearance. So, I mean, he actually had his molars removed. That sounds crazy in itself. First of all, is it is it me? Is it clearer than I'm trying to make it out to be? Or was the plot a little convoluted and you weren't really sure what was happening? Well, yeah, I mean, for that first 45 minutes, it's almost like he's possessed, right? That, you know, he touches the knife and like, he transforms himself. But then when that twist happens, and so, okay, here's that spoiler alert. We knew that there was what he thought was, was the real Haymarket Strangler was this individual and that he had been in an asylum and that the nurse escaped with him and come to find out that he was that, that man, that he, he was, in fact, had killed someone and really was disturbed. And the nurse had become his wife. And she was afraid that once he would start doing the investigation into this case, that caused him to kind of revert. I admit, too, I'm, I'm still a little confused as to, was he really the Haymarket Strangler, or was he simply someone who had killed before and was in an asylum and the nurse fled, then became his wife, and she was simply worried that his investigating this case about a killer might cause him to revert. I don't think they were clear enough with that because it's kind of like, well, maybe he was the Haymarket Strangler. Maybe he really was that killer. But I think it's, you know, because you see that hand put the knife in and he seemed to feel like there could be evidence. So was he channeling his memories or was it just the investigative side of him? And unless I'm missing something, and so if anyone has seen this movie, hey, call us out and say, no, it's pretty clear. Maybe we missed a, a line or something. I don't think it's, it, it was really clearly defined enough there was still a little bit of, well, he could have been, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was just a killer. In any case, once that reveal happens, it seems like the, the pace of the movie changed, you know, and now all of a sudden he's not just this killer going around killing. Now he's in an asylum and now this has turned into him trying to get out of the asylum and how easy was it for him to, he's got straw, he sets it on fire. You've got someone who is, they believe certifiably insane and the guard just walks in and by himself, hello, hello, you know, and then, I mean, come on, he was so easily overpowered. I just felt like that last half of the movie was vastly different from the first. Absolutely agree. This movie and, and Corridors of Blood specifically have a look to them and were very well made and because they're all made by the same production company, Amalgamated Pictures which sounds like we should see an anvil or something coming. <laughs> Definitely a very polished look. This one, like I said, multiple revisits. It seems like every time I rewatch it, 
just kind of sticks out a little bit. It, it's not wearing as well. I still enjoyed it. it, it it's got a few flaws. It, it does have a few flaws. And there's also mentioned his colleague, Dr. Kenneth McCall, played by Tim Turner, even mentions at one point that he thinks he might have a split personality. So there's all kinds of possibilities. And I didn't get all that. Well, there was another confusing part. Last time I, I saw this, uh, I had to kind of rewind the, the DVD to kind of see again, I was like, am I seeing this right or not? So the, the character of, of Dr. McCall, he has a relationship going on with James's daughter, Lily. When they go to the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, what the club or whatever with the dancers and such, there's a character there. Like, so in the first scene, that we're at this club, Dr. McCall basically saves a young woman from kind of a roguish guy and it ends up, she takes him back to her, her dressing room and he's looking very awkward and she kisses him on the cheek and, you know, he kind of smiles and, and then later on, the next time we're at this same club, there's a guy leaving like Dr. McCall, very, very similar, even like a big nose and sounds similar. They're like full on kissing and they're clearly having. And so the thought was, was he cheating on, on Lily? Because that doesn't seem like his character at all. And then the guy, you know, says something about, I'm going to give you pearls or something, pearl earrings or something for each year. And then turns around and leaves. And then she gets killed shortly thereafter. When I first, you know, saw that, I'm like, well, is that Dr. McCall? Is he, it doesn't make sense because he's not played that way in any other scene. Turns out, no, they're two different actors. But I think a mistake to cast the one guy looking and dressing and sounding so similar to Dr. McCall because in first glance, and again, our, our revisit tonight made me just sit there and say, yeah, people could easily think that's Dr. McCall and be confused because he's supposed to be in love with Lily, but here he is. I don't know. I just, I felt like it was an odd, odd choice. And it, it was a confusing scene that, I don't know, that whole scene wasn't needed. I mean, to see that she was having a relationship with somebody, it just seemed like that was added in and didn't really add anything to the movie other than some confusion on my part, at least. Yeah. I wonder it was based on an original screenplay called Stranglehold, written by Jan Reed, who wrote Jason and the Argonauts and First Men in the Moon. I wonder uh, if something's lost in translation or if it is just was convoluted and confusing to start with. I, I don't know. The only thing I, I can really say that kind of supports that he was actually the Haymarket Strangler is he is so darn invested in this case. And I was never really clear why he was so pers well we wouldn't have a movie if he wasn't but i mean really why was he so persistent and would not give up it wasn't like he was really well he didn't know he was personally involved in it maybe subconsciously but i i, I just wondered why was he so hell-bent on proving this guy's innocence it's yeah. different than you know this is sort of I, I associate this with Karloff's mad scientist movies. It, it, same type of, of character, you know, trying to do good, 
becoming obsessed with it and then ending up doing something bad. No science in this, but uh, it's similar. Without uh, the medical stakes and being able to cure someone or save someone, I just don't know why he was so invested simply in, you know, proving the guy innocent. I agree. Um, This whole production, I mean, it's, it's very... There's a lot of people involved in it that we see in other films or that have done other work. It seems like there is something lost in the translation. You've got, granted, amalgamated you know productions didn't do that much that many films, but there was a lot of talented people involved, and it just seems like there's something in that. You know, I'd be real curious to know what the original story, how it unfolds, and you know, is it as unclarified as, as, as this one tends to be. Um, because this one, it, like I said, yeah, at times it's, it's a little muddled trying to figure out well, what is really happening. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe they were trying to throw you off kilter a little bit, but ultimately, you know, maybe that reveal scene when his wife is talking to him, maybe that was supposed to be more clear than it ended up being. Maybe the intention was we're giving you all the answers you need to know when in fact, to me, is like, uh, I don't know. It didn't give us all the answers. There was, there was something, like, again, something lost in the translation may very well be a good point. Your uh, comments are a little discouraging to me because this is a movie that I would think, oh, maybe if I watch it again, it'll make sense. You know, I'll pick up something I missed and it'll become more clear. But it doesn't sound like it does. So I guess no. I will rush to rewatch it. I love it because it has Karloff in it. There really is only one Karloff movie that I will say that I don't like, and that's The Island Monster. I don't know that I will ever revisit that film. That's a horrible film. And again, mostly because it doesn't even have Karloff's voice in it. It's just somebody trying to sound like Boris Karloff. That's about as good as what you get. (laughs) I even enjoy Karloff's final films, those Mexican flicks that he made near the end of his life. They're not good movies, but there's something about them that it's got Karloff in it, and it, and it, he saves the films from being totally bad. This one is, is an incredibly well-made movie. It's, it is enjoyable to watch, and I will probably watch this one again at some point down the line. Unfortunately, yeah, it, it, it hasn't gotten better with age for me. I, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, question mark, question mark, question mark. Seems like they needed maybe this film could have could have benefited from another uh, round of editing of the script to make it a little bit clearer. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't want to be accused of hating. No, no. I, I, mean, I, I don't hate it. It has some flaws. It, yeah, it and I'm, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I asked you, is it just me? Did I not catch something? That's a very real possibility. No. Uh, well, do you've got any trivia on it? You know, I don't think we need to say anything about Boris Karloff. I mean, he speaks for himself at this point. But there's some familiar faces uh, in the cast. Probably the one that stands out more than anybody is the character of Superintendent Burke, who works with uh, the character of Rankin during the film. He's played by Anthony Dawson. You might recognize him from uh, some James Bond movies. He played in Dr. No. You didn't see him necessarily you saw his hands and heard his voice as Blofeld Ernst Stavro Blofeld and Blofeld's first well his very first appearance being in From Russia with Love he was also in Thunderball you recall in those early Blofeld appearances all you would see was his hands 
and he's petting the cat. You wouldn't actually see Blofeld until I think it was 67's You Only Live Twice. But he was the uh, marquee in Curse of the Werewolf, which I just recently watched on uh, Sven Gulli. He was also in the uh, horribly interesting 1981 war flick Inchon. Have you ever seen Inchon? I think we've talked about it before. I've never seen it. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting flick. He was also in Ghoulies 2. Would have been a little older by that point, about 30 years older. And he was looking <laughs> a little long in the tooth in this one. I don't have anything on the character of Cora, played by Jean Kent. She really didn't do much. Elizabeth Allen plays the character of Barbara Rankin, James's wife. She was in Mark of the Vampire in 1935. Vera Day plays the character of Pearl. She has a couple of films around this time period. She was in uh, Quatermass 2 and a film called The Woman Eater, which I had never seen until a few years ago. I had a, I got a copy of Creature Features, the local uh, Creature Features with Cremation Mortem. Someone had recorded The Woman Eater from uh, Creature Features. So it's kind of, it's an interesting flick. I had um, never heard of that, but uh, they did it on Monster Kid Radio a, a while back. It does sound interesting. It is an interesting flick. And I, my copy is enhanced by having Cremation Mortem in it, which is kind of cool. You mentioned Tim Turner playing Dr. McCall. He did the voice of Jason in Jason and the Argonauts. He was the narrator in The Mummy Shroud. He was also the lead in all 22 episodes of The Invisible Man from 58-59. Diane Aubrey played daughter Lily. She's in a couple of flicks that people might know genre-related. Pirates of Blood River, which is hammer, but not horror. And I think Christopher Lee's in that. That's one of his swashbuckling flicks. Also, she was in Village of the Damned. You you mentioned the script being by Jan Reed. Jan Reed also was involved in the screenplay and John Croydon. John Croydon was involved in First Man Into Space, which is another amalgamated production. He also wrote the script for The Projected Man, and he also co-directed that flick. He was also... Early on in his career, he was an associate producer on Dead of Night, which we covered several weeks back, several several months back, <laughs> or will cover. <laughs> the film was directed by Robert Day, who also directed The Haunted, or Corridors of Blood, sorry, and First Man Into Space. He also did several Tarzan flicks, Tarzan the Magnificent, Tarzan's Three Challenges, Tarzan in the Valley of Gold, Tarzan in the Great River, He also did episodes of The Avengers and The Invaders, so he was pretty prolific around this time period. Just a brief mention, this was one of a handful of films produced by Amalgamated Productions. This was a film company established by Richard Gordon in the 1950s. They made a series of films in England, uh, mostly crime films. They used American stars and then filmed in England, and then they did... Uh, All three films that we're covering this week, they did a First Man Into Space, a couple of other things. They weren't in production for a long period of time, but uh, seemed to kind of crank out some films. And there's a certain style to their productions that you kind of, watching The Haunted Strangler or Quarters and Blood or or, uh, Fiend Without a Face, you kind of get a feel for what their films look like. There's a, there's a, a, a similarity, especially between Haunted Strangler and Quarters of Blood and how they the film looks and feels 
definitely. It's not like when you watch a Hammer film, you know it's a Hammer film, or you watch a Universal horror film, you know it's Universal. Kind of the same with Amalgamated, just not as prolific or as long-lasting as the others, but certainly um, put their mark on the horror genre, at least a little footnote with these uh, films that are covering this week. Interesting note, producer John Croydon first met Boris Karloff 25 years earlier on the set of The Ghoul. In 1933, young John Croydon was a T-boy. I didn't <laughs> even know that existed. Mm. But, but why not? It's, it's a British film, so he probably brought the tea to set when it was tea time. Elizabeth Allen and, and Diane Aubrey, you know, they play mother and daughter. It was Elizabeth Allen's final theatrical film. It was Diane Aubrey's first theatrical film. Fun little, fun little side note there. That's, that's all I've got on that. May not sound like that we, we are praising this movie, but I enjoyed it. I think you did as well. It has some flaws. It's not perfect, but it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested about Boris Karloff. Like I said, it's certainly not Boris's worst. It's not his best. It's a solid film, though. Just could have used some work on the script a little bit. Two quick things I want to add that you made comments made me think. First of all, Robert Day also directed a, and this is a shameless plug warning, a 1970 TV horror movie called Ritual of Evil. And I happen to know that because I watched that for my blog on Fridays doing 70s TV horror movies. So Ritual of Evil was a pretty good one, if I recall. Also, I think people have probably figured this out or probably even know that Obviously, you mentioned a lot of British names. This was an English production. It was during a period of time when Karloff was in England and made some movies. So just wanted to kind of hammer that point home. And this is easy for people to get their hands on. Uh, you know, sometimes the movies we cover might be a little harder. This is pretty easy. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. It is part of the Monsters and Madman Criterion box set in which you also get Corridors of Blood, The Atomic Submarine, and First Man Into Space. And I believe that's still in print. I know that it's still available on Amazon. Relatively easy for you to get a hold of. And again, if you're a Carlisle fan, I recommend it. It certainly is worth checking out, maybe on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Well, Richard, I am not even kidding. I have got to run to the bathroom. So I'm going to go do that. I'm going to stop by the concession stand on the way back. I am going to wash my hands while I sing happy birthday three times or whatever. What can I bring you? Well, you know, there's a new candy that just debuted in, in, in this year, 1963. It's something you and I have had in the future, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to have some sweet tarts. That's, oh, that's yeah. And it also... I think there's a, if you I was just going to say, I, I, I think if they have them, I'm going to have bottle caps. That's not something that's very common it was when I, the theater I went to growing up, but I think I'll get sweet tarts if uh, bottle caps aren't there. So good, well, good. Uh, if they don't have sweet tarts, I'd love to have some sugar babies because mm. when I was a kid growing up in the seventies, going to the Fox theater in downtown Newton, Kansas, sugar babies were my candy of choice. And I would, I would eat the heck out of those things. And I, I think they still make them in 2020. They're not, as easy to find anymore, but I used to love the heck out of sugar babies. So if they have got one of those, I definitely don't get any good and plenty. I know that's real popular. No. My dad loved those things. 
I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather drink a bottle of water than (laughs) you head off to the concession stand and uh, I'm going to enjoy these wonderful intermission cartoons, which are worth the price of admission alone. All right. I will be right back. It's refreshment time, folks. Taste that beats the others. Go! Pepsi pours it on. Taste that beats the others. Go! Pepsi pours it on. And now, on with the show. That's not all. The entire spinal cord is missing. That's incredible. It's as if some mental vampire were at work. Does it come from another country or another world? This terrifying menace that G2 must destroy before it's too late. Image is fading, sir. There it goes again. Same trouble. How can they stop this invisible force whose only warning is a weird, blood-chilling sound? Only two people still alive can help this agent find the answers. The girl who could be a spy, and the scientist who could be the destroyer of the entire human race. We're facing a new form of life that nobody understands. I believe it feeds on the radiation from your atomic plants, and that it's evil. to stop them. There's only one way shut down your atomic plant. If I can get through, I can blow up the control room. So that was Fiend Without a Face. First time viewing for me. What about you? Have you seen this? Yeah, me too. That, that... That was a lot of fun. I liked that. This has been on my radar for a long time. And for whatever reason, I've never seen this one on TV. It doesn't get played. I just never really sought out the adding the film to my collection. But this was a lot of fun. Interesting night, late 1950s sci-fi flick, but kind of graphic there towards the end. That kind of oh, yeah. surprised me. There was some some pretty horrific visual shots and the, uh, the sound effects. Pretty, pretty graphic. So I guess we're jumping ahead, though. Why don't you tell us what the movie's about? Yeah, let me see if I can summarize it. So it's in Canada. I think Manitoba, they said. There's an Air Force base there, and tensions are rising between the locals and the Air Force base. There's been some murders, and the, the locals blame this uh, flight testing that they're doing and the, the patterns of their, their flight. They think there's a correlation. 
the Air Force, of course, denies that, you know, just because they're doing atomic testing, that doesn't have anything to do with, with the deaths. Uh, they send Major Cummings, played by Marshall Thompson, to in, investigate. And in a way, it's sort of a race against time for him to prove that, no, the Air Force has nothing to do with before the locals get, you know, into an angry, torch-bearing mob. Whatever the case may be, the, the victims have very strange marks on their bodies. They have two holes at the base of their skull, and their brains and spinal cords are missing. Dun, dun, dun. It's a recipe Sorry for, for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, really surprised by this. I don't know what I was expecting, but it, uh, it's low-budget charms just really won me over. And I think what I really like, and this is an unusual thing to like maybe, is that when we actually, well, first of all, I like that for a big part of the movie, the creatures are invisible. And this is sort of oh, guerrilla filmmaking in a way. I mean, they're, you don't have a lot of fancy special effects to show that they're invisible, but they take extra pains to show. Like, for example, when it walks into a house or something, everything gets knocked over. So, you know, not only is it invisible, it's very clumsy. But that tells us, you know, that there's something moving through there. So I thought that was yeah. clever filmmaking, you know, low budget filming. I really like that. But then I really like the creatures when they do show up at the end. And I was sort of impressed. I mean, the effects aren't fantastic, but it's stop motion, you know, for yeah. heaven's sakes. And I just really liked that. And I, I found the whole thing very charming and entertaining and, and fun. Yeah, you know, I, I was curious when I saw those special effects that the people had done anything else, you know, because obviously we're not talking Ray Harryhausen, but... Pretty good. I mean, for what normally you would have seen in this time, you you would have would have not used stop motion, right? You would have just used some prop and there's some strings wiggling a few things here and there. Yeah, the people who did the the special effects work there was a Peter Nielsen, a Flo Nordorf, and a Carl Ludwig Ruppel. They did no other work. Uh, this this is really like I, I don't know if it's a one and done for them, but. They didn't do any other monster flicks, which is kind of amazing because they did really good work in this film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, not up to a Ray Harryhausen standard, but I would have thought that this would have got them other work. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't. You know, I was a little, little uh, sad to see that. Yeah, and again, it's not the greatest. I mean, it's probably, it's very jerky. There's probably one movement in this stop motion and there would be two or three in some other, you know, but... Still, yeah. it just, it works. It's it's really good. I also liked how the uh, creatures sort of multiply. There become more and more of them. And, you know, it's a big threat, but they're easily disposed of. You know, all you got to do is shoot them, you know. It, so it's the sheer quantity of them, you know, that becomes yeah. the threat. I thought that was cool. It just, it seems like a lot of times, oh, simple bullets won't kill them. It's got to be something fancy, but no, just shoot them. And, yeah. and I like that. We have this 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 gurgling sound as they're moving, which in itself sounds frightening. I had to laugh. There was one scene though where where Major Cummings and the uh, femme fatale, if you will, of this of this film, Barbara Grizel and the professor, are they're in a room and they hear the gurgling sound, and then you know the professor's you know hasn't quite explained things yet, and then Major Cummings says, "Well, you know, I'm going to go back to base," and I'm like. 
is no one going to address that there was a gurgling sound in the room <laughs> that you couldn't see? That would disturb me greatly. I, I don't know that I would be leaving them behind. This movie's not perfect because there, there's, there's certainly things about it that kind of make it stand out. It is better than a lot of the, the cheap sci-fi flicks we were getting around this time. It's not necessarily A quality, but it certainly is not Z quality either. I mean, and I, I don't, I'm trying to think of some films around this time period that sci-fi flicks that would have been, well, was it Teenagers from Outer Space or something was around this time? I mean, yeah, some of those are certainly a much lesser quality. You do get some uneven acting in this movie. Some of it, I think, is just when you're looking at the cast. Well, I mean, Kim Parker, for example, she plays Barbara Grizzell. She's got kind of a unique acting style, not the usual femme fatale. I mean, actually, I don't even know if you would call her that because she was pretty adversarial towards Major Cummings. And then you get the scene that, oh, well, she's taking a shower. And, and so he knocks Oops, on the, the door. door was open. <laughs> I, I, and I had to laugh at that. Cause that's one of Carla's pet peeves. And she says, everybody walks into houses unwelcome in these movies. I had never noticed that until she calls it out. And I'm like, yep, 99% of movies have somebody going where they shouldn't be going. And he walks in. And then of course she happens to walk out and she is in her, her bathrobe. And she's rather buxom, and I wouldn't necessarily, she wasn't overly attractive, but you see her then standing there in her in her bathrobe, and then she's just kind of very casual about it, isn't she? I mean, I would have thought she, based on her previous experiences with him, she would have been yelling at him. She was just like, make yourself at home, and then she goes in the bathroom, and she is so hot and cold in the early parts of this movie. Cause then, you know, he does one thing and it's like, cause then of course the guy comes in the room. Right. And I can't remember his, who he was, but he was an assistant or something. And he was obviously the two guys got into the fist fight and they're kind of indirectly fighting over her. And then she ends up telling major Cummings, I think you've done quite enough here. You must go. Of course, by the end of the movie, they're pat, you know, kissing passionately. And as, as these movies often do. She had a unique quality to her. She didn't do too many films. And the only other genre-related films that she did was The Man Without a Body, which I have not seen. I've heard of it a few times, but I don't, I've never seen it. And a film that I have, but have never watched, is Fire Maidens of Outer Space. Um, she played a fire maiden. I don't know. I, I'm kind of curious now to see her in that film. But her in her towel um, and and looking very sexy was heavily used in the marketing of this movie. Lobby cards, posters, what have you. They clearly used her for the sex appeal factor, which is interesting because aside from that one scene, she's not really portrayed that way in any way, shape, or form. Clearly didn't have a problem with that. There's a picture of her where she's like, standing over the shower was like a publicity shot. Clearly the breasts are not on full display, but they're there. And I think this is superimposed, but I, I don't think these were actually there, but someone's put like brain pic, you know, images of brains or whatever on there. Her, it's a picture of her definitely because she's like 
kind of smiling. So it was a publicity shot of shorts, which I thought in itself was just kind of funny because it's definitely not that type of film, yet it was marketed as that sex appeal factor. And really, a lot of the other cast I kind of felt were a little different in this movie. Not as polished, I think, as, as, say, The Haunted Strangler. And simply because, I mean, I'm looking at at what these these actors did, and some of them actually did quite a bit. Marshall Thompson, who played Major Cummings, he's actually got some big screen creds for, for the genre. He was in Cult of the Cobra, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, oh, first, first Man into Space. That. He was in seven episodes of Science Fiction Theater, which is a show that I haven't even really attempted to dive into, but I hear good things about. I know Vince Bertolo over the B-Movie cast loved that show. He was also, and I, this may be, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he was the character of Dr. Marsh Tracy in a movie called Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion that then got a TV series based on it, Doctari. 89 episodes oh, of Doctari. I didn't know that. Did you ever, have you ever seen Doctari? Oh yeah, you? I know that. I didn't know it was a version of that movie. I, I, I didn't know that, yeah, that it was, yeah, the movie came out before and then it was a spinoff, I guess, or based on the film, because I remember the Doctari intro because it had Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion and that's hmm. how he was, yeah, and I didn't, I didn't know that that was actually a movie before the series. Doctari is something that modern audiences and back in 2020 wouldn't remember because I don't even remember the last time I've seen Doctari on TV, but it's one of those shows that's hmm. been kind of lost, but it was on TV back in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, Channel 41 out of Kansas City used to play, play that all the time, and that was a fun series. And there's some interesting connections to shows we've done in the past. Kyniston, or Keniston Reeves plays Professor Walgate. He's in some Sherlock Holmes films. Uh, he was in The Sign of Four in 1932, and later on in the 70s, I believe, yeah, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he did lots of British film and TV work. The character of Colonel Butler, he was the commanding officer, was played by Stanley Maxted. Um, this was his last film. He died in 1963, so he died this year that we're in right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's dead yet or not. Spoiler alert for those <laughs> fans of him. Uh, he died at the age of 67. Captain Chester was played by Terry Kilburn. He played Tiny Tim in MGM's version of A Christmas Carol in 38. He was also in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1939 with Basil Rathbone. And in 2020, he is still alive at the age of 93. The character of the mayor, uh, who never gets a name. He's just the mayor. Uh, Not even the mayor. Mayor, according to... Yeah, he was played by James Dyronforth. He was in Hammer's Never Take Candy from a Stranger, which I've never seen, but I have. Oh, that's good. In a, uh, a film that I have not I have seen several times and enjoyed the heck out of, Horror Hotel uh, with Christopher Lee, also known as City of the Dead. That's a, that's a really fun flick. Anyway, you've got an interesting cast because they've got a lot of screen, screen creds, but I didn't recognize any of them. No. Um, so they're, act- there's, they're, they're the, kind of the classic case of actors who kind of blend into the background of films, none of them 
what I consider, like even Marshall Thompson, he's got obviously some cred, but I wouldn't consider him leading man material. He may have been a leading man in films or TV shows, but not necessarily someone that I recognized right offhand. And I think that's what, what adds to the, the occasional, well, you know, kind of unique quality to this film. It just kind of makes it a little bit, I don't know, I, I don't want to say otherworldly, because like I said, sometimes there was some bad dialogue. Sometimes it was slow moving. But then, you know, you had a little bit of a lack of logic going on at times, trying to understand. But then other times it was just really kind of cool and kind of different. And you have the repulsive sound effects. And yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. Sometimes I'm like, it just seemed kind of uneven a little bit. There were some parts of the film that just seemed wanting, but then other parts that just really stood out as unique. I don't know, being the, these are all English movies, you probably don't have any Star Trek references this month, do you? I, I'm, I'm going to stretch and make one for you, but I first okay, I want to confirm. Good, do I you don't, or do you some, not have any? I don't have any Star Trek references. Oh, uh, well, see I here, have, I've got your back. I, I I've got, got Doctor Who covered, though. I've got Doctor yeah. Who covered. Yeah, all right. So here, this is stretching, but, all right. uh, and you you mentioned bad dialogue, not that I consider this bad dialogue, but dialogue. When they're doing the autopsy of the first body and they discover the holes and they say that the brain has been sucked out through those two holes, the entire spinal cord's missing. You know, they want to know what what's going on here. And the uh, guy doing the autopsy, who I can't think what that's called right now, mortician, something, says, I'm a doctor, Colonel, not a detective. <laughs> So, I didn't catch that. That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, now, there we go. go. That, now we know where Dr. McCoy would get it several years yep. later. So, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to read this to kind of help explain when they, when Professor Walgate goes on his explanation of what's going on, I know that it was hard for me to understand completely what he was talking about. And it's one of those things where, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. You know, because there's not a lot yeah. of real world logic in it. But keep watching the skies, American science fiction movies of the 50s by Bill Warren. He covers the film. And there's, so there's a quote in there, a couple paragraphs that, that's fun. And I thought it'd be interesting to read it just to kind of explain. They're talking about as they're getting ready to um, to explain, you know, kind of this part of the film. It says, this made him able to detach my thoughts and allow them to work on their own. And then the author writes, it's at this juncture that the plot really becomes unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) Walgate goes on, quote, I began to devise a being into which the thought, once released, could enter and preserve itself for all humanity. I envisaged something akin to the human brain with light and mobility, but without the limitations of man's body. The author says, this is a little odd. Fiends seem to have even more limitations. They can't walk for one thing, and they can only crawl laboriously. But they were really great jumpers. And then Walgate (laughs) goes back to say, I succeeded. But like thought itself, it was invisible. I had created a fiend. (laughs) Kind of the proverbial mad scientist sort of not really thinking this all through, you know, I've got a great idea, but not really. And I'm going to create something better than humanity, but really I'm creating a fiend that's got limited, you know, options of which to even move. 
that was kind of an interesting when he's going on and describing it. It's kind of like, yeah, you didn't think this one through. It's a very abstract creature in the, the creation of it. I mean, it's much simpler to go by just the words they use over again. Like he calls his whole experiment thought materialization. And I didn't really put it together until you read that quote, but now I, that kind of adds to it. I kind of now understand that, you know, it wasn't just about thoughts materializing, but it was giving them physical form, but individual unique thoughts, I guess. I don't know. But you missed the most uh, horror movie aspect of that, that the final boost that he got, you know, that took him to the next level was a lightning storm. Yes. He was kind of stalled out, but then one night, lightning gave him a boost. Well, and of course, we've, got, we, we've also got that atomic energy thing going on, too, that, that was so 1950s, right? Because atomic energy is, is eventually going to create nothing but giant monsters and, and, and bad things. I'm surprised we haven't continued that on into the nuclear age. They also call these creatures, for lack of a better name, but they do it several times, mental vampires which to me doesn't quite align with exactly what we get. I mean, I guess it goes with what, you know, their victims look like, but I don't know that that's the best description of these creatures, a mental vampire. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know that I would go with that either, but it sounds cool. So, yeah, I mean, so this is actually based on another short story. Again, I, it's kind of cool that amalgamated productions is doing this. So, based on the thought monster by Amelia Reynolds Long. And this was published decades earlier in Weird Tales magazine, 1930. So and here's an interesting little tidbit. So the story was originally submitted by Boris J. Ackerman. He submitted it to AIP and they turned it down. But AIP producer Alex Gordon said that his brother... Richard Gordon might be interested in it, who, of course, has been founded Amalgamated Pictures. That's why they, they, Richard Gordon eventually picked it up, and they took the production to England, and that's how we got the movie made. So it was interesting that this Forrest J. Ackerman, famous monsters legend himself, the original monster kid, right? He played a hand in this film, getting the scene to the light of day. Apparently, you know, it wasn't, we've talked about kind of the graphic nature. I mean, it's pretty gruesome when they start killing the, the brains. I mean, they're shooting the brains and you've got all this blood and goo and stuff. It'd be so awesome if this was in color. And the sound effects, they ran into some problems. You know, the British Board of Film Censors, you know, certainly, I think, had a much firmer hand on films than... Hollywood did as far as like restricting violence and such. And uh, when the film had its premiere at the Ritz theater in England, the violence kind of created a bit of a, a stir as it were, there was a, a number of cuts that were demanded before they would even give it the X rating. I don't know. Obviously those cuts probably don't even exist anymore. I'm kind of curious as to like what, what they would have cut if it was more, Brain goo, uh, I guess. <laughs> uh, I was going to say blood and guts, but no, there's there's not not any guts involved in the brain, so I don't know. Um, interesting to see what they would have would have potentially done. Despite its flaws, this I did enjoy this movie. This was a fun flick. 
And and it's funny because I, you know, I was looking at like the trivia for this. So it's directed by an Arthur Crabtree who had just previously worked with Boris Karloff in Colonel March of Scotland Yard, which is a TV series in which Karloff plays a detective, for lack of a better term, with Scotland Yard. Apparently, while filming this, Arthur Crabtree, he thought that science fiction was beneath him. And apparently he quit at one point. And supposedly, according to Marshall Thompson, he finished directing the film. Uh, I don't know if that's legend or true or what have you, but that was a little tidbit that I saw. Interestingly enough, though, Arthur Crabtree, I think it was either his last film or his next to last film, would be Horrors of the Black Museum. (laughs) And apparently that may have been what caused him to decide to quit Hollywood. I mean, you look at his at his filmography, and, and he was a pretty, I think, straightforward, straight-laced director who didn't want to dabble in science fiction and horror. And he probably reached a point in his career where he was being handed these projects, and he, he didn't want to go that route, apparently. Then his career ends. Had he uh, maybe put his English sensibilities, I'm assuming he's English, he might be American, I don't know, but... Yeah, he might have had a longer career, but he didn't want to dabble in that. Nonetheless, I think he did a good job. I don't know, again, how much Marshall Thompson was involved and what he might have directed or not directed, but maybe Thompson did direct a little bit more. Maybe that's why there's certain parts of this film that's maybe a little uneven. Maybe you've got two different directing styles going on. Hmm, could be. I enjoyed this, though. Uh, I, you know, I don't know why it took me so long to to see it but I, I this one was a fun one for me same here i well we haven't seen the third one yet but i might venture a guess that this is my favorite of the three so we'll, we'll come back to that i guess after we talk about all three this one's uh easy to uh to find you can rent it on amazon prime and again it's part of that criterion box set so pretty easy to to find out there not a lot of extras on this set. You know, sometimes Criteria knocks it out of the park. And sometimes they get a base run you know, out of it. <laughs> um, and, and this is one of those cases where I think it had a little bit more than The Blob did. There was an interesting conversation on, on this that it was between Richard Gordon and uh, Tom Weaver, actually, that kind of give us some insight you might want to uh, take a look at that extra, as it were. Yeah, this is one of those movies that I I would like to dig into the extras and learn more about it. I enjoyed it that much. Well, Definitely. guess what? I think it's your turn to go to the snack bar. It is. And I, you know, I, I'm an early, I, I go to bed early. I might just recline the seat and just get a few winks, maybe take a little nap while you go to the snack bar. Uh, be sure to wake me up though when you get back. Uh, do you want anything from the snack bar? Are you just gonna you just gonna uh, take, a, take a nap? <laughs> you know, I I guess if they've got coffee, I'd take a cup of coffee. That might help. Well, you know the ads, those intermission ads, they always say as you know, a steaming hot cup of coffee. Oh, you know, somehow that's outweighed by the pizza and the barbecue. That's kind of what I focus on, not the coffee. Yeah, ex- glad exactly. Glad you caught that. I do know that that Coke went up. From the last time we we traveled, back in 58 or 59, Coke was still five cents. It it was five cents for 73 years. Wow. But then then shortly after we left our last jaunt, it went up in price. So it's actually 10 cents now, which 
I would gladly take that in 2020, <laughs> but you know, yeah. 1963, there was a bit of an uproar, believe it or not, about the price of Coke going up. How dare they? But you know what? Gas is still 30 cents a gallon. <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware of that because of our, our trip to the drive-in. You know, I always fill up before. I don't want to get stranded on a road, especially at the end of three or four scary movies. No, no. You know, in, in 63 was a good year for films. I'm not sure that any of the films we're seeing today were the top grossing films of the year. But do you know what the top three movies were of 1963? Oh, goodness. I know I don't. I, and they I, are I won't waste time speculating. Number three, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which I think is mm. funny because that's a project you and I have on our very yes. short horizon. Yes. Number two, how the West was won. And number one, Cleopatra. Oh my gosh, that is interesting because as far as I know, all three of those are really, really long movies. They are very long, yeah. Uh, and how huh. the West was won. Wasn't that Cinerama, I think? I believe so. I believe so, yeah. And It's a Mad, Mad World is 72 hours long <laughs> with a cast of millions. Anyway, I'm going to head to the concession stand because uh, I want to make it back so we can get ready for our third feature. Yes. All right. See you in a minute. Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, your sweet tooth. So visit our refreshment center now. Let's go! And now, on with the show. Shock! 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 In all the history of horror pictures, nothing so shocking on the screen. <laughs> Corridors of Blood. Bolton. The committee have decided against holding any further demonstrations. I tell you, I must have those chemicals. <laughs> a bargain's a bargain, eh, Doctor? You keep your end of it, and I'll keep mine. Starring Boris Karloff, genius or madman? Better St. John, drawn into the deadly vortex. Finley Curry, who believed at first. Christopher Lee, the killer known as Resurrection Joe. I can't sign that. I don't know how he died. It's a favor for a favor, Doctor. You want your book? Hospitals want bodies. Shock after shock after shock. Don't hold in your terror. Shriek if you must. 
A Nerdorama Shocker. This picture is not for timid souls. So that was Quarters of Blood, another Karloff movie. Interesting. Uh, I have to tell you up front, all these Karloff movies, and we talked uh, in the first segment about uh, the sort of the, the formula of the reluctant scientist or, you know, that goes about all that. The same time I was watching these movies, I was watching The Man With Nine Lives on Sven So they all kind of go together. But this one is a little different. I mean, this one, he is a scientist. Well, I guess before we get into it, why, why don't you summarize, Richard? Give us a little synopsis of this movie. We're in London. This time we're back in 1840, so we're going a little farther back than his first film, and he is a doctor. He is a Dr. Thomas Bolton, and he is trying to essentially discover anesthesia. He is trying to, to come up with a way to you know, help his patients not have to endure such horrific pain, which is just kind of accepted. You know, there's a scene with one of his rivals, fellow physicians who are just kind of like, you know, well, you know, it's just, you know, pain and suffering. It goes with the profession. Dr. Bolton doesn't think that. He wants to be able to to ease that, that pain to the patient. But, yep, he doesn't know quite when to stop with, with his studies. And it becomes a, a bit more kind of begins to devolve into that mad scientist category a little bit because he's trying to get that formula. Meanwhile, of course, he's, he's doing some work in the slums of uh, London, the Seven Dials district, as they called it, and gets wrapped up in some nefarious characters there and, and inadvertently becomes addicted because he starts using, was it morphine or no? It was just his own formula, wasn't it? There was something though that he was that he was adding to the formula that was mm. causing that that drug addiction. Not morphine. Oh gosh, I can't remember now. Anyway, and that's what sends him in the kind of this this drug fueled visits to the the slum district and kind of just the gradual decline as as he's just kind of slipping further and further into madness and obsession and. It's just, it's kind of an interesting path he begins to take all while he's trying to do good. He's not trying to do evil. He's actually trying to do good. He just becomes a bit obsessed along the way. Doesn't know when to quit and take a break. To me, this is the least uh, horrific as far as being a horror movie. There's yes. you know, not really. However, I can't imagine anything more horrific than going through surgery without anesthesia. Oh, <laughs> that, and the scenes that they show of people doing just that are very hard to watch. So it is horrific, but you know, at times, it, and I kept waiting, I had never seen it before, I kept waiting for it to take that route where it went supernatural or horrific or something, and it never does. I mean, he becomes addicted, and in one way, it's just very much a drama about addiction. It's more of a, yeah, thriller, really, than, than, yeah, it's definitely not a horror film. You know, I, I, I can only imagine what the pain is going through something like that without anesthesia. I had multiple shoulder surgeries at one point in my life, two in each shoulder. And one of the surgeries, I woke up on the operating table and feeling the pain, actually. Um, 
out of all the surgeries I've had, that was my worst experience because in hindsight, gosh, maybe I should have sued somebody because like, why did I wake up on the operating table? That day was just so bizarre because I remember waking up on the table and they're, and they're talking to me. Like, I think they were expecting me to like, oh, I'm fine. But I remember basically it was like someone was taking a sledgehammer and smashing my shoulder because I remember screaming out in pain and then they immediately give me anesthesia to knock me out again. But then I, I was sick all day. Um, it wasn't the, you know, surgery in the morning and home by 11 thing. It was like I was in and out of consciousness all day. And it's like five o'clock and this is an outpatient facility waking up and my, my wife telling me, you've got to stand up, go to the bathroom and show that, that, you know, you can keep down food or they're sending you to the hospital because they can't keep you here. And she says, if you want to come home. And so I'm like, all right, all right. So, I mean, it's like literally I'm holding together. I always jokingly think of Star Trek reference. There's an episode from the second season called journey to Babel where Kirk has this surgery he can barely stand, but he has to get to the bridge so that Spock gets relieved of duty so he can go save his father's life and go through some heart surgery and do like blood transfusion or something. And, and as soon as Spock leaves the bridge, Kirk slumps in the chair, you know, and calls Scotty to the bridge. I, that was exactly what I did. I was like, I, I mm. did enough to make the nurses think I was alive and get to the car and get in the car, they closed the door, and I remember just slumping in the corner. I was in so much pain and so out of it. That pain, it was horrific, and I can't even imagine getting sawed on and having limbs cut off while you are essentially awake. That sounds horrific. I can't even imagine that. I can imagine, but I can't imagine it. Horrible. Yeah. And they acknowledge it, that it's not a good thing. And, and you know, they compensate for it by emphasizing the necessity of speed. You know, if it's going to be painful, let's do it quick. So yeah, because they're watching their watches, right? Yes. There's, they're doing it. And the longer one of his surgeries there towards the end, I think it's his last surgery. It's like, they're looking at him as like, you know, and, and it's like, she's going to bleed out. Oh yeah. That's yeah, no, nothing like being on the operating table. And it's like, okay, we've got to hurry up and do this. So, you know, or you're going to bleed out and you're awake to the whole process. Ugh. Is there any truth to this? I mean, I don't know the, the history, but at, at times it's also like a historical drama. I mean, no. is there any truth to the, this, how it happened in real life? That I couldn't find they... anything when I did my, hmm. my research. No, I couldn't find anything that supported that this was based in truth, but it does seem like that almost. We do get the happy ending, essentially. Spoiler alert, things don't end well for Dr. Bolton, but essentially he does get all the madness and such that he endured. He does get redeemed after his death because his son essentially continues the work. And the last scene you see is the, the device that he used is like in a, a museum case or something, and it's got his name on there. That's that nice, happy ending that, that you got. It's I'm glad they did that, because if they would just ended it without there being a resolution, it would have been kind of a sad ending for Dr. Bolton. But his research, despite the fact that he goes off in a totally bad spot for parts of the film, 
at least it does end and that something good came of all of this madness and suffering. But I don't know if it's based in, in any measure of truth. I couldn't find anything initially. So I don't know if any of our listeners out there know anything about this film or about anesthesia and, and the creation thereof. Drop us a line or, or leave a message on Facebook and let us know. It did seem almost like we were watching a biography of sorts, a pretty twisted biography, but yeah. that there was something there. The other thing that makes it more horrific is just the time. It's such a grimy, dirty time in history. And it really is, yeah. yeah. I want to be alive. I, you know, yeah. it's like you, you think of the, oh gosh, Sherlock Holmes and all the glamour and stuff. I was like, to me, it would just seem like everything was just, unless you were rich, you weren't living a good life. Well, everyone seemed to be happy there in that little little uh, inn or whatever. I'm like, yeah, if you're not getting stabbed in the back and, and it, heaven forbid, if you get sick, you know, trying to, oh, yeah. Just. That inn was like the Moss Isley Cantina. I mean, that was a hive <laughs> of scum and villainy. And, ugh. and, you know, we can't go too much longer without mentioning that Christopher Lee is in this. Absolutely. And I think he has, I, I really liked him in this. He's not necessarily a big role. He's kind of quiet, but he's always dark and lurking in the background. Um, I, I thought he did a really good job. So I, I think he would have filmed this. I was trying to figure out where he filmed this at. It, it, it at least would have been after he did Curse of Frankenstein. I don't know if he filmed it before or after Horror of Dracula. You know, the, the release of this film is interesting because it was initially released in the UK in December 58. That was like a limited release. And then it didn't get like a full release until almost four years later, uh, September 20th, 1962. And then another six plus months before it got its US release, which was May 63. By that point, Christopher Lee had done several other films, definitely Horror of Dracula was out, The Mummy was out. By 63, I mean, Christopher Lee was always one of those actors, kind of like Karloff, right? Just busy. Christopher Lee especially would kind of almost do any film project that came his way, almost. I mean, he did, he was in, in a little bit of everything. So he was in a multitude of genres. This film, of course, having, you know, be four or five years after it's, completed before it's getting its wide release in the States. Christopher Lee's career changed quite a bit in that time. And, and it is interesting though. I mean, so he's clearly just a supporting character, but man, anytime he speaks, he, he, he owns the scene, right? You want, I wanted to see more of Resurrection Joe. Yes. And he meets a, a rather an unpleasant end, certainly, or we assume that, I mean, I guess he could have been alive, I don't know if they mentioned if he was dead or not. A little worse for wear, certainly courtesy of, of a uh, little vial of, of acid thrown at him from Boris Karloff. I thought it was interesting. I never really thought about this before, but the connection that Karloff and Lee had with characters that they played. There were four characters that they played that both of them shared in the sense that Karloff played the Frankenstein monster. Christopher Lee plays him in one. Boris Karloff played the mummy. Christopher Lee played the mummy. 
Karloff played Fu Manchu in The Mask of Fu Manchu. Karloff played Fu Manchu in a series of, what, four or five films in the 60s. And they both played Rasputin. And that's probably something a lot of people might not know, is that Karloff played Rasputin in an episode of Suspense from 1953 called The Black Prophet, which that, that actually still exists. Then, of course, Christopher Lee played in Rasputin the Mad Monk uh, in 1966. Kind of cool. I never realized that until I was doing research for this, that there was those four characters that they you know, shared. But yet, on film, they, they only did, what, two films together? Because they did, what, Curse of the Crimson Altar, right? Is that mm-hmm. They did that one, and then, and then this one. I don't think that they did another film together. That I, unless I'm, I'm not thinking of one offhand. So they didn't do a lot of work together, but yet what they share is actually uh, kind of cool, I thought. We mentioned that this and uh, Haunted Strangler are, are similar, same director, same type of look, very polished look. I don't have the, the plot complaints about this one that I do about the other. However, there's just a couple little things that nag at me. And first of all, Karloff's a respected surgeon and he does his surgeries in the theater where the students can watch him and all of that. And so he wants to demonstrate his anesthesia, which he believes works. This big burly guy that they're going to do surgery on, he wants to give it to it and knocks him out. They start the surgery and of course he wakes up. So they therefore blame Karloff's formula as not working. But I wasn't convinced that it was, that that's really what woke him up because I don't, really know how far they got it seemed like he woke up just right before like they cut him or anything and so I kind of felt Karloff was cheated that it he didn't really get yeah. a chance to prove did you get that impression or I, I did I felt like there was a line that maybe maybe tried to there should have been some explanation as to why maybe because he was a bigger guy maybe the you know he should have been given a bigger dosage maybe he already had something in his system alcohol or something in his system which kind of was the way he acted and maybe that allowed the because I mean that would be anesthesia you've got to be ready for it or it's not going to work 100% I felt like they should have added a line there or something to explain that because yeah Karloff was cheated I was like I was I was almost in that scene I'm like no it's not his fault he had the one guy and I don't know his name but there was the one guy that had it in for him but then he had was Superintendent Matheson, played by Finley Curry, was his friend who was trying to help him. Uh, and again, I don't know the guy, who, the other guy, but it's like, I didn't like that guy. I was like, no, you have it in for Carlos. Carlos tried to do good. Yeah, he was cheated. I thought I hated that. There were several things that just seemed like if Carlos would have been allowed to, to do his research, and if Carlos would have had someone there with him when he was inhaling this stuff rather than trying to do this on his own, all of the problems wouldn't have happened. He would have been able to do his research in a controlled situation. They would have, they would have come up with anesthesia. He wouldn't have been so impatient when the one victim died. You would have thought he could have come out and said, so you know what, the patient in order for this to the study to work, we need to have a control situation to know what we're doing you would think that somebody would have believed him and don't do the test today. I don't know. It, it seemed like he had so many things conspire against him and he was his own worst enemy to a point. 
situation would have been different. He, he, we wouldn't have had a movie. And that goes to my second nitpicky point is this doesn't seem like the type of experiment you do on yourself. I mean, what did he intend to do if he, well, first of all, if he knocked himself out, he wouldn't be conscious. He wouldn't know whether he felt anything or not. But, you know, I went, did he think he was going to just numb himself and cut his arm and not feel pain? Yeah. And now it's working. I just, it really, it just seemed like an odd experiment to do on yourself, like you said, it's, with no one else around. It is the weak point of the plot. The movie is, it has a very polished look to it. It is my favorite of the three. Oh, is it? Yeah, of the three, you know, Haunted Strangler, like I said, is one that I feel is really strong in those first 45 minutes and kind of falls apart in the last 45. And I love Fiend Without a Face. I would gladly watch that one again. But I think for, for Corridors of Blood, I think despite that, the weakness there in the plot, to me seems like it is a polished production from beginning to end. I think the cast is, is you've just got a really good cast. Karloff is, of course, Karloff. You've got uh, Christopher Lee, great, in, in a role that, you know, should have seen more of. As I mentioned, Finley Curry is Superintendent Matheson, well-accomplished actor, uh, 147 credits. Uh, around this time period, he was doing, he was the narrator in Ben-Hur. He was in Fall of the Roman Empire. He was in Cleopatra. Adrian Corey played Rachel. She was the wife of the crime boss, Black Ben. She was in Doctor Who. Here's, here's where we get our references. Uh, the Leisure Hive, 1980. She was also in A Clockwork Orange, and she was also in A Study in Terror, the Sherlock Holmes flick. Francis DeWolf played uh, Black Ben, kind of a big, burly, rough and tough guy. He was the spirit of Christmas present in 1951's A Christmas Carol. He was in Hound of the Baskervilles in 59. He was in uh, two episodes of Doctor Who, uh, The Myth Makers and Keys of Marinus. Myth Makers, he plays Agamemnon. Uh, that's a Helen of Troy story. Uh, he was in Curse of the Werewolf, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, Manikichi Death, very prolific around this time period. Then, of course, Francis Matthews, who plays uh, son Jonathan Bolton, was in some films around this same time period, Rasputin the Mad Monk, which we mentioned. He was also in Revenge of Frankenstein. You've got a really solid cast. It's written by Gene Scott Rogers, and I'll, I don't know, if, I don't think I did research on her. I don't know what else she did. The film was directed by Robert Day, who we mentioned earlier. You know, he did The Haunted Strangler, so he was very prolific around this time period. Solid cast, solid production. I just felt like this movie of the three is the most polished. It's not a horror movie, but it's it's a good thriller with a few weak points in the plot that, that could have been addressed, should have been addressed. For me, it, it didn't deter from my enjoyment of the film. This is a film that, again, I, I bought this on VHS back in the uh, 90s, and with each viewing, it seems like I, I enjoy it every single time I watch it. Whereas Haunted Strangler, like I said, I'm kind of finding things here and there, nitpicky a little bit along the way. Fiend Without a Face, thoroughly enjoyed it, despite the fact that I felt it was an even in certain ways. I didn't get that feel from, from this one. So that's why it's my favorite. Hmm. And I, I still say Fiend Without a Face is my favorite. It's just the most fun. And, and we're thinking about our environment, the drive-in. It's a great drive-in movie. 
you know, little disappointed to go to a four movie horror and take my swallow my horror pill, you know, and then see corridors of blood. It just doesn't quite fit. But I do I, I do like it a lot. And it's my second favorite. Well, clearly capitalizing on the fact that Karloff was in it, that's why it's marketed as right. sure. not, not the first time that they would do that. Black Friday, for example, I don't view that as really a horror film, yet it's marketed as a horror film. You know, you're talking about Karloff's mad scientist films. He, he's a, not necessarily a mad scientist in this one. He's a scientist who maybe didn't think this all through entirely. When you talk about like other mad science films from the 30s and early 40s, there's a lot of those that, that just interchange and blend together, right? Yeah. The man with nine lives, the man who lived again, uh, the man they could not hang before I hang. All great flicks. They're fun flicks. And I know there's others, you know, that he did it on into the 40s. This one, you know, I think stands a little separate because of the time period and the pseudo step into reality, the history of anesthesia, to me, elevates it above some of the earlier films that he did, you know, where he's clearly just a in mad scientist mode to one degree or another. I don't know necessarily if Corridors of Blood is better than any of those movies. It elevates it maybe just a tad or sep- keeps it separate. Maybe it's, it's, it's almost like a separate category because it's not horror those have horror elements to mad scientist horror element this one a little less so but again you've got christopher lee playing resurrection joe and so immediately you're thinking "Ooh, horror horror and he's creepy and he certainly is bad but yeah this is more of a thriller what do you know about any scenes that were omitted because of the censors i know that they apparently cut some scenes of amputation of the leg, which you really don't see any. I mean, you, you, you see movements, right? You see, see stuff. Apparently they cut some graphic scenes involved in some of the amputations. I read about that, that there was a scene where a watchman gets stabbed in the back and also apparently the acid in Lee's face, but that seems to be in this. I'm like, I don't know what more you could have shown. It's, pretty graphic he gets thrown on his face and you do get a close-up and you're seeing the bubbling and and stuff happening on his face unless there was a maybe another scene maybe flesh falling off or something i don't know that seems to be intact but there's definitely during the surgeries i felt like maybe there was something that could have been cut because you don't see very much of the Oh, you don't see any of the operations. Well, there's one thing and it's hard to see. And it's sort of a, um, oh, not a montage, but an overlay, you know, where there's something happening, but you've got another scene playing over it. And I caught it just for a minute. There was a very, very graphic scene of amputation, but it was really quick and it was happening behind. Oh, I can't think what you call that. And I'm sure everyone can see what I'm doing with my hands right now, but you know, when you've got two images and they're kind of transparent, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I know what you're like, they're, they're, I, I definitely caught that. And I thought, I, I didn't catch that. So that was pretty early. And I thought, Ooh, this is going to be grim, but then that was about it. I, and yeah, if you missed it, then it was, you know, slipped in or covered up or something. And there may have been more that was 
sensor. Maybe if it wasn't in strictly in focus, that may be how it got past the sensors. Yeah. So, well, what else you got on it? Anything? You know, really, the only other thing I have is that this was originally going to be called Doctor of the Seven Dials, but MGM, which had the distribution rights, didn't feel like anybody outside the UK would know what Seven Dials stood for. And let's be honest, Doctor of the Seven Dials or Corridors <laughs> or Blood, clearly MGM knew what they were, what they were going for. And yeah. yes, Doctor of Seven Dials would not even be a, a film that a drive-in would be interested in showing. Corridors of Blood, obviously. You know, you got a cool poster, you got Karloff on the cover of it. Yeah, that's about, that's all I've got. I recommend all three of these films. If, if you haven't seen them, absolutely see all three of them. They're all worth checking out. Even The Haunted Strangler for its unevenness, in my opinion, in the second half is still worth checking out. There are good performances from Karloff. Being Without a Face is a great late 1950s, not space aliens, but, you know, science run amok, I guess is the best way to describe that. All definitely worth checking out. They're all easy to find. Corridors of Blood, if you've got Amazon Prime, it's actually included as part of Amazon Prime. So that's not going to cost you anything more there. And of course, it's in that Monsters and Madmen Criterion box set. Easy to find out there. Definitely this and Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory would have made for a, a fantastic night at the drive-in. As we've experienced three of these films, yet in that fourth, that would have been a werewolf in a girl's dormitory would have been odd to see with these three. It's certainly very different film as far as style because it's a European horror and, and very different, I think, than, than the rest of these films, but would have made for an awesome night at the drive-in. Well, all right, then I'm going to hang the speaker back up and you know, I hate at the end of the drive-in all, you know, it's not quite over, but all the cars start turning on their lights and start going out and yeah. half the screen is obstructed at the lights. I say I hate it. That's part of the charm of it. Let's uh, do the same and let's get in line so we can get out of here. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk some more on the way home. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. We are back in 2020 in... The pandemic, I think I liked it better in 63. Um, you know, we probably should have started off our show by saying we hope that everyone is staying uh, safe. 2020 continues to be a, a, an interesting year. We hope everyone is, is doing well and staying safe, doing what they need to do to, to get through everything. We've got a long road ahead of us. The best thing for us to do, I think, is to uh, find these moments where we can enjoy movies and conversations and, and, and make our way through the best we can. One reference about 1963, Doctor Who related, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that 63 was the year Doctor Who made its debut. November 23rd, 1963, very first episode of Doctor Who uh, aired called An Unearthly Child. I, I think of this, there is uh, 
gentleman over at Dread Media, his name's Tom DJ, and he's a regular contributor over there now. I contribute randomly. He's there pretty much every week. He is starting off on a bold journey. He is starting off watching Doctor Who in the very beginning and making his way through all of it, much like Carl and I have done, and we've been sidetracked for forever. We're, we're only in year two of Doctor Who. We need to get back into it. But he's taking it to the next level. He is doing a blog post per individual episode. I don't even know how many episodes <laughs> there are of Doctor Who, but we're talking probably 1,000-plus. It would be like taking Dark Shadows and doing a blog post on each individual episode. That is a massive undertaking. Best of luck to him. I've been reading what he's got. That's, that's a huge undertaking. Anyway, 1963, Doctor Who made its debut. But we are now back in 2020, so uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. What, what do we have on anniversaries and coming soon and all the fun stuff? Yeah, well, we have a huge month for home video releases. It's been kind of light the last couple of months, and we've kind of speculated on reasons for that. Man, we have a lot this month from a lot of different labels, too, which is interesting. We're recording this about a week late, and uh, yesterday, which was Friday the 10th, I believe, the Barnes & Noble Criterion sale started. And I don't know why I'm in that Facebook group, uh, physical media, DVD, Blu-ray, something in that one Most commented or liked because those are all now shooting the top and everyone's showing the photos of their criterion movies that they picked up uh, i only wanted one war of the worlds found that at a local barnes and noble and and we'll be picking it up this weekend so that's out uh came out on the 7th actually last tuesday as well as a couple from kino the day the earth caught fire flesh and the fiends and then uh one on redemption video i, I mentioned it well, for a couple of reasons, just Jess Franco film, but it, it's being released as Neurosis. But one of its alternate names is Revenge in the House of Usher. And that's a movie I've always heard about, Revenge in the House of Usher, and never been able to find it. Jess Franco is kind of an acquired taste. I've only seen a couple of, of his films and I'm not hooked yet. Always willing to try more, but yeah, not I'm curious name. because it, it comes up occasionally uh, in research <laughs> awesome and, title yeah uh, 14th we've got a couple shout factory one of them a hammer release kiss of the vampire uh movie called tattoo from 1981 now what do you know about tattoo we might have even talked about it on the show at one point i do know about that one bruce dern and maude adams right and, and I don't mean like what, you know, what it's about or anything, but like the history on home video, there was a period of time where, and this was back when I had video stores, people were always asking for that. And it either wasn't available or had not been put out yet or something it was very rare. And it was very much in demand, which instantly tells me there must be sexy in it because that those are the well, kind of movies everyone asks yeah. for. <laughs> I do believe that it was put out on home video in the early 80s and went out of print as a lot of those early VHS releases did and then went into obscurity because now I remember seeing it on HBO many nights in my room turning the dial on my black and white TV yeah there's a lot of nude Maude Adams in it yeah I mean it's controversial to the extent that Bruce Adams plays a tattoo artist 
who kidnaps Maude Adams and tattoos her initially against her will. And then she kind of plays along. Not a film that left me wanting to take a shower because I felt <laughs> grimy, but it's definitely kind of a, a sleazy factor to it. But Bruce Dern is awesome and, and you know, quirky and, and Maud Adams was very attractive at this point. Yes, after that, the movie wasn't available on home video. And there's some had to do some rights issues because when I was seeking this film out quite a, a number of years ago now, 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't find it on eBay. It was one of those movies that if somebody tried posting a bootleg of on eBay, it got pulled down right away. Hmm. I had to get it through iOffer. I did get a copy of it through iOffer. And, you know, this release, the, uh, this Blu-ray release, it never got a DVD release. At least here in the States, it never did. I don't believe has been available on home video officially since the early 80s. It's a pretty big deal if it's getting a Blu-ray release. It's it's a interesting flick. Yeah, yeah. Something sparked when I saw that. I thought, oh, I bet there's a uh, group of people that are going to be happy about that. A couple of movies I'm not familiar with, but you know, 70s horror gotta push it here. And I'm not even familiar with this label, Eurocinna. Natalie, Escape from Hell from '78, and then on Code Red, Jungle Holocaust from 1977. On the 21st, we have from Shout, How to Make a Monster, and War of the Colossal Beast of course, makes me hope that some of those others will eventually get put out, but Richard shakes his head no. The, the window of opportunity on those as just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You would think after all these years, I know the widow owns the rights to those. You would think that she would, it's all greed and money, and she's seeing her potential earnings diminish with each passion, passing year. It's kind of crazy after all these years. Sad, really. Uh, 1981 flick called Mephisto. About devil, uh, obviously making a deal with the devil. We talked about this last month or month before. The Inner Sanctum Mysteries coming out in a box set from Mill Creek, the Lon Chaney Jr. series. And then I'm mentioning this just because I want to. Castle Rock, the second season. This aired on Hulu, I believe. I watched it. It's just really, really good. If you're a Stephen King fan and you like the movie Misery, this is about a young, uh, whatever her name is, Kathy Bates played her, and it's, it's really good. thought I'd throw that in there for bonus. On the 28th, we have The Tenant from Shout Factory. That's a Roman Polanski film. I'm very eager to see, probably purchase that. I don't know that I've ever seen it. Maybe that's why I'm eager, but there's sort of a mystique to that. I guess. Yeah. Old Dracula from 1974 with David Niven is coming out on Vinegar Syndrome. No mystique there at all. Uh, and Relin Revenge of the Living Dead Girls, 1987, coming out from Severin. Now, I want to test you, and this is, won't be a test because you will pass it. There is a movie coming out on Kino Classics, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It is not Disney, but it is a 1916 I assume, silent film. It's an hour and 45 minutes long, so it's a full-length feature. What, what do you know about this? Anything? I have never seen it. I, for some reason, I didn't know that a copy of this existed. Hmm. Maybe this is one of those that has been recently rediscovered, or maybe I'm just 
totally ignorant. I don't know. Um, I, I knew it existed. I didn't know that, that it, it had actually still existed. I knew it was made. 1916, boy, that's early special effects. Uh, but they did some amazing things with special effects back there, uh, back then. Yeah, I'm interested. I, you, know, you know me in silent films. I, I love silent flicks. I got to be in the mood for them, but I do enjoy the heck out of them. I will need to, to take a look at that. Yeah, and Kino, Lor- Kino Lorber, right? You said they're Kino enough. classics. So, uh, yeah. They don't do a lot of extras on their Blu-rays, which I, that's a bit frustrating because I, I wish they would do something a little bit. They don't do much in the way of extras. And that would be something, gosh, I, I, I would hope they would do throw something out there about this film. Let us know if you see it or get it or hear anything about it. Got a couple birthdays. Uh, as you know, our birthdays and anniversary section is pretty much turned into referencing previous episodes. So uh, we've got just a couple birthdays, but quite a few anniversaries this month. John Pertwee, July 7th of 1919 was born. I will mention him for House of Drip Blood. You can mention him for what? Uh, yeah, a little little thing he did called Doctor Who. Uh, my favorite doctor, actually. I love John Pertwee, and he died in 96. Yes, 96. Larry Cohen, our friend Larry Cohen, July 15th, 1941, did a whole episode about him, a Christmas episode. And then Madeline Mary Collinson, July 22nd, 1952, the lovely Playboy model twins that were in Twins of Evil. So anniversaries, going to run through these quickly because there's a lot of them, but I want to mention them. How to Make a Monster, July 1st, Fiend Without a Face. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> I wonder. I don't know. It's, and The Haunted Strangler. We didn't even mention release dates, but Fiend Without a Face and Haunted Strangler were both released in July of 1958. Hound of the Baskervilles, the Hammer version we did in our Hammer or our Sherlock Holmes episode, July 3rd. Mad Love with Peter Laurie, July 12th. Island of Dr. Moreau, the 77 version, July 13th. The Fly, the original Fly, July 16th. Dr. Fives Rises Again, July 19th. The Amityville Horror, July 27th, 1979. And Good Old Willard, July 30th, 1971. July summer months, I guess historically, great month for horror releases. You know, you say Willard, and I think of, of immediately Ben and 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 that song, that quirky puppet song that that kid did. That it's on the tip of my brain, and then I start to go in this twinge, and my body starts to convulse. So, yeah, Willard's that's a, a classic, though. I, I that's a film I probably need to revisit again, and just. I have a feeling that's a film that I might appreciate more with, with subsequent viewings. And, and Ben was just a whole nother thing that, that was kind of, <laughs> but what's going on with you. What are you doing these summer COVID months? Kind of doing a couple of things right now, doing my summer with Stan and Ollie. That's going to continue on into September. So we're just working our way through Laurel and Hardy films, nothing horror related there really. Actually, you know, they, they did a few things, you know, the old dark house spooky things. Actually, we just watched, and I didn't cover this for the blog because it's not really a movie. We're just covering movies for the blog. They did a three-reeler in uh, the early 30s called The Laurel Hardy Murder Case, which is a classic. Stan Laurel is 
uncle or something dies and they got to go to a house and it's all everything you would expect from an old dark house movie. You know, there's murder and mystery and spooky stuff. And it's so fun. And in the set that we have is that they also have some of the Spanish language versions in which Stan and Ollie would speak phonetically. And there's one that they did called Noche de Duendes, which is taking that three reeler of the Laurel and Hardy murder case and then a, a, a two-reeler they did called Birthmarks, which is this whole scene in a train, and combined it into like almost a movie. It was almost an hour long. I think even the, the spook house elements, the old dark house elements, were almost done even better in the Spanish version because they refilm everything. Kind of pseudo-horror related. Anyone needs to check that out if you haven't. I'd recommend it. So we're doing that. And then I'm doing some Robert Wise uh, flicks. I have to kind of give a shout out to uh, J.R. Jordan. He uh, follows my Kansas City Cinephile blog. He's an author. He reached out to me following the blog. Apparently, he used to live in Kansas City. And so I guess he did a search for Kansas City and movies and somehow found my blog and reached out to me. He wanted to know if I wanted a copy of his book that he wrote. I think in hopes of kind of getting some publicity on the blog and, and you know what, I want a free copy. Absolutely. So Robert Wise, the motion pictures, a book that features a forward by Gavin McLeod and an introduction by Douglas E. Wise. The forward by Gavin McLeod is kind of, if it's, it's random, right? You would think, but Robert Wise was actually a pretty diverse, right? Cause he did some classics like day the earth stood still and the body snatcher Star Trek, the motion picture, but then he also did West Side Story and, and Sound of Music. And so this book, basically every chapter is on a movie, you know, he and he goes into uh, a lot of interviews and, and stuff. It's a really well put together book. I thought it'd be fun when I got this and I started reading my way through it. You don't have to read it beginning to end. You can just read random chapters as you're watching movies to kind of go revisit some old articles I did on Robert Wise films. And so I'm posting those uh, one a week for a few weeks here, three weeks at least, uh, maybe add a few new films in for good measure, and then giving a plug for his book because it's uh, out there and it's available and uh, it's uh, a fun read. going to give a shout out to him and, and thank him again for my free copy of the book and a chance to get people to maybe become uh, acquainted with some of his genre films. If somebody out there hasn't seen The Body Snatcher, you need to crawl out from under your rock and check it out. It's a great Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi flick. I covered uh, A Game of Death, which is a, a remake of The Most Dangerous Game. And then I'll be doing The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a classic, which actually Carla and I just watched a few weeks ago. I haven't done these yet. I might. Maybe uh, check out The Haunting, which is another film he directed, uh, which I've seen. It'd be a revisit for me. And Star Trek The Motion Picture. That's about it. You know, I'm, I'm doing uh, my OTR Wednesdays starting July 15th. Going to be doing about two months worth of Alfred Hitchcock radio adaptations. Got a whole slew of those going to be thrown out there. My Beware the Blob. Uh, was just covered on the July uh, Memoverse Monthly audio cast, new edition of the Kansas City Crypt. Haven't done anything over at Dread Media yet. Recently, I've got a couple ideas on some things I've recently seen that I thought might be kind of fun, but haven't done anything yet. 
watching a lot of stuff, watch a lot of TV shows, but not writing a lot of strictly horror related stuff for, for the blog, just kind of taking things a little bit more lighthearted and doing some other random stuff here and there. What about you? Oh, pretty much the same thing. I, I mentioned our Fridays, the TV terror guide and doing the, the seventies horror movies. Those are fun. And Monday's still a review pretty regularly on Monday um, using vintage books and magazines as my research for those. Which I love when you do that. That is so cool. I you, And these are all I know from your library. So that's so awesome. So yeah, thanks. And then I don't know that if you noticed, I expected some type of acknowledgement on Wednesday that DC Comics guy I did kick back off with the Freedom Fighters. Yes, so I just you- read that. I think yesterday, um, it was kind of a crazy, crazy week uh, at work, unfortunately. Very, very busy. One of the, I, My job is feast or famine. Over the course of two days, everything came all at once. And, uh, hey, I've, I've got two days to write 17 articles. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I did read Doll Man. I, I'm, yes, I'm very excited about diving into the Freedom Fighters again. And I don't know much about their early history, much like you did a year ago when you kicked off the the blog and, and did Uncle Sam. Uh, I'm looking forward to your introduction of the characters. And then, yep, I'm going to have to go down to the archives and dig out my copies of Freedom Fighters and play along. Uh, absolutely. Yep. And this week will be Black Condor. It's all ready to queued up and ready to go on Wednesday. Um, And then I had kind of a landmark or a milestone that I've talked about this before. Classic Horrors Club has a YouTube channel, and I was very active on that early on, just putting, whenever I posted something, I would put the trailer on there. There's a couple little homemade video things on Dark Shadows that I've done. I've never really publicized it, but I think I've commented before how I'd like consistently get comments on on those. I reached a thousand subscribers on that, which just blows my mind. You mentioned that the other day and Steve Sullivan mentioned something. It was like, we need to look into putting the podcast out there. I know Derek does it over at Monster Kid Radio. I know that would be one more thing on your plate, but maybe not much effort. I mean, if the show's already done, it would just be adding uh, a logo essentially and would be an easy way for people to listen to the show without having to go through, you know, whatever podcatcher or whatever you know, that, that they're using. Definitely, yeah, I would, I would love to see if we could do that. And, I, you know, I know you haven't put anything new in there for a while. Trailers, put it, putting up the trailers of the movies that we're covering each month. I know that would be kind of a fun Yeah, and, and see, I just don't, I don't know. I guess I don't understand going to a video media source to listen and, you know, if you're watching, you wouldn't see, I, I would want to have something for them to watch. I mean, maybe when it came to the trailers, the trailers were actually there or even images of the movies while we're talking. I mean, see, I just couldn't do anything simple like posting it on there, which is silly, but I want to make there be a reason to have it on a video channel. You know, is, is that irrational? Well- I mean, you could certainly do an enhanced version. I guess, you know, maybe once things settle down for you a little bit, maybe that's maybe what we could do is kind of just throw it out there, you know, with with uh, with our logo and just say, you know, kind of test the waters a little yeah. bit. So we're putting this out there. 
I don't know, put a poll out on Facebook. It's like, is this something that you would use? And would you like to see an enhanced version that might include clips or might include, you know, what have you, you know? Yeah, and I don't uh, know if you go through copyright issues or not, but wouldn't it be cool while we're there talking about the scene of the leg getting amputated to have that playing? Absolutely. And I, I don't know, maybe we could record a Zoom session and we could actually show ourselves. There you go. So that actually, anyway, that's, that uh, would be fun. I think we need to explore that. I think that, you know, the, the cold hard reality is this pandemic's not going away. The way all of us are, are partaking of entertainment is changing. Our interactions with the real world is going to be limited for a while. I, there's just no way that it's not. This isn't going to go away, despite what anyone else out there may say, that it's just magically going to go away. No, I think our world has changed at least, you know, for a while. I think we'll be dealing with this until next year. You know, I, I as much as I want the world to kind of resume a sense of old normality, I think we kind of have to, to deal with the new normality. And, and while we can interact with people occasionally in the real world, Fact of the matter is, we're not going to be able to to do some of the things that we used to do. So we're doing things at home, and so maybe we need to take advantage of this opportunity and maybe step up what we do from the home front and, and take advantage of that YouTube channel that you have. It might be something fun to to dive into. And I I'm technically challenged. You're you're the the technical wizard here between the two of us. But uh, I think between between the two of us, I think we could do something fun. And thank everybody for participating in our brainstorming session here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If, if, yes. If this makes the episode, I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, um, well, you know, let's just throw, let's throw it out there, though. Yeah, no, yeah. I was going to say, like, let us know. It helped me understand. And I think Steve said it. It's just another outlet. It's a way, another way people can listen to it based on if they're at their computer or in the car or on their phone or what. So, and and I have no doubt there is no issue with plopping it down on YouTube. And so maybe we'll do that this time. But I think it'd be fun. I, I think would like to explore fun. enhancing it, like you say. I think it'd be fun. And, and honestly, you know, th this is something to, to consider, again, as we're brainstorming in front of everybody. We have the, the ability to connect with, with, you know, with Zoom. Might be a fun opportunity to do a three-way interview <laughs> <laughs> where... And maybe we put that up on 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 YouTube, you know, as, yeah. as it's not necessarily an, an episode of the podcast, but it's a visual three-way conversation between us and a guest, whoever that first guest may be, you know, I you know, you know, whether it's somebody movie related or uh, what have you, it might be something fun to explore, something a little fun that we could, uh, could kind of throw out there uh, to help the channel in. I don't know. A lot of ideas. Let us know what you think, people. Let, let us know if this is something you're interested in. Do you want to see what 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 uh, Jeff and Richard look like when when we're recording? Because I know that I'm dashing today, mm -hmm. uh, freshly shaved, new haircut. I'm looking good. Uh, be fun. Fun. Something fun to yeah. throw out there. Well, you know what I'm interested in is what are we doing next month? We're going to the drive-in one more time. Where are we going? What are we going to see? We are going to travel back, but not quite as far back this time. We're going to go back to the funky 70s. Uh, July 30th, 1971, to be precise. We are going to be traveling to um, 
El Paso, Texas. That should be a pleasantly cool experience in July. We are going to be going to the Fiesta Drive-In. And that's a drive-in that's got a unique history and a, a very unique modern day history. That drive-in is still open, but it's not quite the same as it was in 1971. <laughs> we'll talk about that next month. Uh, and we're going to have a cool double feature. Yogg Monster from Space, otherwise known as Space Amoeba, and Destroy All Monsters with Godzilla and Ghidra and Rodan and everybody well, else. All monsters, really. All monsters, exactly. Going to be a fun double feature. Yeah, we're not the kaiju experts, but I think this will be fun. I've not seen Space Amoeba. This is interesting. I thought that I had. I was confusing this with a movie called Dogra or Dogra. And for some reason, I, I thought that's what it was. And I looked at the trailer the other night. I'm like, I have not seen this. And I don't have it in my collection. And it's like, uh, thankfully, it is available on, on Amazon Prime. I thought this is one you gave me one time that you had digitally. Um, because you gave it, I thought you did, oh, it was like the same time you gave me Unman, Wittering, and Zygo. Well, I, I have a digital copy of this that I acquired off of archive.org. I thought it had subtitles, though, and it doesn't. It's oh. got, it's a unique, it's, it's, you can choose between the Japanese language version or the English dub. Unfortunately, the Japanese language version doesn't have subtitles. Mm. Whether I, either way, I think I'm going to have to watch the English dub, which is not my preference. But unless it's available on home video, which I think that it is, but I don't know if it's available in, in Japanese language, which is always my preference. So yeah. I'll have to do a little research. But nonetheless, double feature next month of some kaiju goodness from Hot Texas in 1971. Yeah, in the 70s, man. And this will be perfect because we also plan to share some of our driving experiences. That was my era for the drive in the 70s. So that's going to be perfect for any. I'm looking forward to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, very so cool. Then. A, uh, let's where, just remind we... everybody as we pull back into town and get close to our houses that you can call and leave us a voicemail at 616-649-2582. Join the Facebook group page. Send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. All of those good things. And if you find it in your heart, you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That's all I got to say. Oh, anything else, Richard? I see uh, I've got the radio turned down so we can talk, but I see a very appropriate song playing. And as soon as we're done, I'm going to turn it up and we'll listen to it. Sounds like a plan. Uh, I don't have anything. I think uh, I think I'm good. You're good. Uh, just want to make sure, tell everyone again, stay safe, take care of uh, yourselves, take care of your loved ones, and we will see you next month. Yeah, so here we go then. This is Fiend Without a Face by Emergency from their 2012 album, Everybody Panic, available on Apple Music. Like Richard said, take care. We'll see you in a month. The 
Dominate a living age The human race you will find 